Uh, this is Ian Harvey, Toka US Brand Manager. I'm back with Keegan Randall. Not including relays or team events, Keegan Randall has reached the podium 31 times and has 13 victories on the World Cup, World Championship, and Olympic Games. She's won the overall Sprint World Cup three times and was third in the overall World Cup in 2013. In the 2018 Olympic Games, Keegan won the gold medal in the team sprint with Jesse Diggins. In addition to her 17 U.S. National Championship titles, this five-time Olympian also won individual silver and bronze medals, as well as a team sprint gold medal in world championship events. This is part two of a two-part interview. If you haven't seen part one yet, please watch that before watching this one, because this is part two. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Keegan. I really appreciate you being back for part two here. My pleasure. Yeah, well, we had so much fun yesterday. I had to keep the conversation going. Super. I had a thought. Um, in the last interview, we discussed your, oh, so in the last interview, we discussed your childhood, how you got into skiing, your meteoric rise to the top of Nordic skiing in the United States, the process that you undertook to reach the top of the world's elite, dealing with disappointment, and the moment when you knew you could compete with the world's best. So, Keegan, I had a thought. From my perspective, I've had quite an interesting perspective of you, maybe other people too, but um, I've seen you go from a talented young squirt who I was glad to support to someone that I admire and respect and I'm deeply proud of. It's really cool to consider your transformation from my perspective and hopefully to see the potential in other young skiers through this experience. It's pretty neat. Thank you. Very cool. Well, thank, thank you. I mean, it's, it's, it is really always fun to talk to people who have kind of witnessed the, the journey and the transformation from uh, a different perspective. Because when you're in it every day, it's like time, like 20 years flies by and you don't feel like you've changed that much. But yeah, I mean, I look back at my 18 year old self and I was a little pipsqueak <laughs> with a lot of energy. Yeah. And I'm grateful for all those that were uh, patient with me and willing to help me out at that point. <laughs> sure. But I mean, what I'm saying is, I took you out to dinner in Park City before the 2002 games. You might remember. I assume you remember. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. We had a great conversation. And But at no time in that dinner did I ever think I'm sitting down with a future Olympic champion or a future World Cup winner. I never once thought that. I just thought this this girl is interesting and fun to hang out with. And um, maybe she misses her family. And um, it's... I, um, it's my pleasure to kind of take you out to dinner and just kind of keep you company and get to know you a bit, you know? Yeah. I met Jessie Diggins when she was maybe 15 and supported her as well from a young age. And at no point did I ever think this girl's a future gold medalist, this girl's a future World Cup winner, et cetera, et cetera. I think perhaps I might be thinking that the next talented, especially talented young woman, I, I have an encounter like that with. You've paved the way in many ways. And this is one other way, you know, the perception and, and, and seeing the potential in others where previously there, there wasn't a reasonable potential to perceive. Yeah, although I have to say, I have a funny story about meeting Jessie for the first time. Um, and it really wasn't actually even meeting her. I, was, I had uh, gone home to Anchorage uh, at the end of the 2008 World Cup season. Um, and junior nationals happened to be on. And so I went out one day to watch the race and I literally saw this girl ski by and I saw her ponytail bopping and I just went, that girl's got the right energy. There was just something about the way she skied. I just, it caught my attention. Um, and then later that night I came and presented at the awards and afterwards I had this huge long line. I was signing autographs and I ran out of posters and I was mortified because these kids had been waiting 
And this blonde girl went and found like a cereal box from the trash can, I think, and came over and had me sign it. And I just went, wait, that's the ponytail. And then when she showed up literally on the world championship team two years later, it was like, oh my gosh, that's the ponytail. So it's like, as soon as I saw her ski, I, I just knew there was something special about her. Cool. That's really neat. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about, let's continue our discussion from yesterday. We wrapped up the first part discussing that in the Sochi Olympics, when you were eliminated in the quarterfinal of the individual skate sprint, you knew that you wouldn't get another chance in your career to compete for an Olympic, an individual, in an individual skate sprint in the Olympic games. At least not compete for the gold medal, realistically speaking. Is that fair? Totally fair. Totally okay. fair. As much as I tried to prove my classic sprinting, it just never quite got to the same level. I don't want to sell you short. You know, you've, you've uh, exceeded everyone's expectations time and time again. But bottom line is you'd have to wait eight more years for a skate sprint and that wouldn't make you, you know, that, that'd be, that'd be something else to win a skate sprint, you know, at an advanced age like that. So this is something I want to explore with you. Of your 31 individual World Cup and World Championship podiums, podiums, 30 were in the skating technique. So you are very good in classic, but you're obviously better in skating, much better. Also, despite some excellent distance results, you were obviously most successful in the sprints. The Winter Olympic Games only come every four years. The individual sprint race format, the technique changes every four years from classic to skate and back. This means as an athlete who is a monster in skate sprint, like yourself, you have a chance for individual glory every eight years. Despite your success in the team sprint, would you rather see an individual sprint in classic and in skate at every Olympic and world championships and perhaps eliminate the team sprint or maybe there's another solution you could find or suggest to provide more opportunity for specialists or for those with weaker teams? What changes would you success, uh, suggest, if any? Yes, certainly, certainly a question uh, I thought about a lot, you know, being such a specialized athlete. Um, you know, once I, uh, in 2009, I got elected by my peers to be the FIS athlete representative for cross country. And so that was my first year where I went in and kind of sat at the, the cross country committee and the World Cup committee discussions and where you talk all about formats and kind of learned how formats really get decided for world championships and Olympics and everything. And, you know, at the time, I certainly wanted to advocate for skate sprints every day all the time um, to give myself the opportunity. And it almost seemed like, yeah, shoot, they should have two individual sprints uh, in each technique at each Olympics, because you look at swimming where they get to do every event, um, track and field, you know, where they have the multiple disciplines. And so it felt a little bit unfair. Um, but at the same time, in really hearing the discussion, I came to appreciate the fact that, you know, there's, there, may, there are some people that are really good at 10K classics too, and they get a shot once every eight years. So the nature of our sport makes it just a little hard we're kind of fortunate in that we have six medal events per gender um, on our on our calendar. I mean, you, you think of mountain biking, they get one one shot at a medal. Um, so we have multiple opportunities. Um, it was kind of motivating to go, okay, well, if I want to give myself more chances, I have to get good at the other events. Um, having had so many positive experiences in the team sprint um, and also hearing what great uh, television viewership numbers um, kind of the atmosphere in the stadium. Um, 
personally, I would have a hard time getting rid of the team sprint. I, I think it is a pretty special event. I think the two-person two event versus a four-person um, opens up opportunity for more, uh, for the smaller nations to be more competitive. Um, and, it, and it's really an exciting format that I think you could know nothing about cross-country skiing and you could come in and you can watch it and, and people kind of get hooked and they get an idea of what skiing's about. So um, I'm not sure I could get rid of the team sprint just to add another skate sprint to the program. Um, you know, that said, I think sprinting is really, um, it is really a good event for our sport. It, it is easy to understand as well. It's close to the stadium. You know, you need less, less of a footprint to make it happen. Um, so, you know, I'd love the idea of trying to just advocate to add another event, um, you know, and, and I think at this point, really the skiathlon is almost the next thing on the chopping block um, versus the team sprint. Um, so, you know, perhaps if skiathlon, you know, morphs into something else, would that open up another opportunity for, for the skate sprint? Um, I don't know. Uh, so it, it, was, it was a little challenging being so pigeonholed into one event. Um, but maybe that also added a little extra intrigue to it as well. Sure. Well, I, uh, I agree that the skiathlon would be the event that I would be, I would uh, like to see removed in lieu of another more attractive and interesting event. So let's continue with your career. You continued to compete and then took a baby break in 2016 with the idea of coming back in 2017 for the world championships and then for the Olympic Games, of course, in 2018. You did this, winning an amazing bronze medal in the skate sprint in the 2017 World Championships. When you did that, at that moment, I was in the Berkey Expo, and they were showing the, the races live in a huge, on the wall, basically, in the Berkey Expo. And so something, you know, thousands of people were packed in there watching it. And when you and Jesse took your individual medals, uh, the place absolutely went bananas, which was amazing. It, um, it was a pretty unique experience, I think, to be there witnessing that. It was probably as exciting as being there uh, at the World Championships itself. Anyway, can you tell us about how this was to take your baby break and then to fight to come back and be competitive and then to have everything come into place at the right time? Yeah, well, um, it was a really interesting experiment because um, after 2014, after I had missed my opportunity to win that uh, you know, individual medal in the skate sprint, I really had a big decision to make. I had, you know, my, uh, my husband was really excited to start a family. You know, I was also excited and I was, uh, you know, knowing I wouldn't have another chance probably individually. It was like, well, I've, I've had a pretty amazing career up to this point. Like, am I done? Um, but at the same time, I, I felt like I was just getting to the fun part. I mean, like that 10 year plan had paid off. I was competing for world cup wins every weekend. I had this amazing team that had been, you know, built up around. I was having so much fun with it. I was like, I was totally not ready to walk away. So then instead of kind of thinking of it as an either, or we kind of went, well, um, you know, there's no uh, textbook to show you how to do it, but why not try to take a year off, have a, you know, have a baby and come back. And just knowing that any, anything beyond 2014 is really bonus because I have had this amazing career to fall back on. So, you know, I'm optimistic that I can come back and come back to the same level I was at. But if for some reason, whether it's, you know, health or circumstance, you know, that I'm not able to make it back, you know, I can be at peace with that. And so, you know, maybe having that pressure off to just, you know, see how it went um, was helpful. 
So the timing actually worked out great in that, you know, I had Breck in April, which is typically our break time anyway. And then I was, uh, I worked with, really closely with my coach to kind of gradually build back, um, to be really patient. Um, but even with that patience, like things were coming back around. I was feeling really good in training leading into the season. So we packed up the family, headed over to the World Cup. And then that first period of World Cup was really tough. I had a really hard time feeling like I could push myself through the red line. Um, you know, we're, we're carrying around all this baby gear. We're having to figure out like how to still be a part of the team, but also kind of live separately so we don't disturb anybody. So, and just, just learning it all for the first time. Um, so we got to the race in December um, in La Cusa and I felt like I couldn't ski my way out of a paper bag. I just, um, I was just really concerned that I wouldn't be able to get back to pushing myself that I had been, you know, dragging my family and that, you know, maybe this wasn't going to work out like I dreamed of and, and thought about like, shoot, am I done? Am I just going to give up halfway through the season? But then I was like, okay, come on, like, don't be dramatic. Like, you know, you've, you've already done all the training. You're already over here in Europe. Like, let's just, you know, we're going into the Christmas break. Let's just get a little training in and let's get to the tour to ski and then I'll make a decision. So took that Christmas break, um, ended up like feeling pretty good in the tour to ski. I mean, it wasn't amazing results, but it was certainly a big improvement. And I started to feel like, okay, things are clicking now. Um, then almost from then on, every weekend got better and better. And by the time I came into the world championships, I was like, shoot, I think I'm actually informed to compete for a medal. And, uh, you know, that, that night was kind of crazy. Um, you know, I, I, narrowly got into the semifinals um, after some kind of conflicts out on course um, getting ready for the semifinal I had mixed up the time in my head I thought I had 10 more minutes before my heat started and then all of a sudden it was like Keegan your heat's going in like three minutes and I had to like strip off my warm-ups and run down there I mean almost missed the start um, make it to the final and then it's Sophie, Jesse, and I, and we had this awesome moment, like right before the final started where the three of us were in this huddle and we were just like, oh my gosh, America power, like, let's go. Um, and then, yeah, to win that medal was just, um, it was so cool because I just knew that if like a month or two before that I'd been almost ready to pack it in. And then here that result, like really proved to me that I had worked my way back. And then I was just, how cool it was to be able to combine this new chapter in my life, having a family um, and being able to still ski race at a high level. And I think from that day, I carried a lot of confidence into my last season. Absolutely. That's like a dream come true right there. It is. But, you know, again, like I, I just really tried to keep an open mind. Um, I tried to ask a lot of questions. Um, I, I was really open about what I was thinking and doing. And, you know, the team was incredibly supportive. They allowed me that time to take a season off and then come back and, and participate in camps where it made sense. Um, that was really important. My, a lot of my sponsors really supported the idea. And I just kind of thought that's the way it was for female athletes who wanted to have a baby, but come to find out, uh, not every sport is so supportive. I mean, you have stars like Allison Felix who are getting cut out of their contracts and aren't guaranteed starts to come back. And it's just, you know, um, I, so I was incredibly lucky um, and I hoped that by, by doing it, I could set an example to all the women out there who um, want to, you know, want to start a family, but don't want to give up on their career prematurely. Do you want to comment on the efforts that you made to make the, the World Cup more mother-friendly, young mother-friendly? 
Yeah, so it, it was kind of a fun coincidence or maybe not such a coincidence, but the year I decided to take off to have a baby, you know, was that kind of funky year between championships. So uh, there were several other racers that strategically targeted that year as well. You know, Mart Bjergen being one, uh, Aino Kaisasaarinen from Finland, Katja Visnar. So it was this baby boom in cross country. And since there were going to be so many new moms on the World Cup, you know, we just kind of went to fists and said like, hey, if these moms are coming, you know, what could we do to support them? And, and thankfully, FIS was like, this is a great idea. And they, um, they worked with the race organizers who got really fired up about the idea. And they were providing baby rooms on site at the World Cups. They were stocking them with diapers and changing tables and toys. Um, they made it possible for us to have an extra staff quota so that we could bring a caretaker with us and still get the World Cup rate, you know, get that extra credential. Um, you know, I was certainly the athlete that took advantage of most of it because I was living in Europe for the entire winter. Um, some of the other athletes more chose to have their children at home and just come to the races on the weekend. But I think it still was um, really beneficial for everyone. I don't think it increased cost. Um, it really just said, you know, as a support, as a sport, we're supportive. And, uh, and, and I think people got excited about it. And, you know, I know I certainly bonded with those other athletes over this, um, you know, all being first time moms. Just the principle of the thing makes me feel real good because as a, as a, as a man, it's difficult to kind of wrap your mind around the decision that you're being forced to make. And you go to a world cup and you're from the United States or Canada, you, you need to go over for the long term. You can't go back and forth. You're going to bring your baby and your family, your husband, or your, your husband bringing the wife. Um, having a room at the World Cup itself and having a little bit of preferential treatment about, about credentials and, and pricing that the World Cup might help you with, just, but just going to a World Cup race and having the opportunity to have your baby in a baby room that isn't where he's gonna, the baby's going to get trampled or, or you know, kind of passed around like a, an unwanted burden, et cetera, um, I think that could give you a peace of mind to focus on the event while at the same time knowing that things are good. And, and it just feels right because that's the way things should be. So I'm kind of, we talked about this, I don't know if you remember, but you told me about your vision regarding this at Outdoor Retailer mm -hmm. We've for quite a while at the end of the show. And uh, I was really impressed with that. It shows a, a perspective and vision that um, I didn't have, that's for sure, as a man, at least. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you're right. It really is a, a different situation for a woman um, having a baby uh, as opposed to a man. I mean, um, but we actually saw a couple of the World Cups, you know, we didn't limit this to only the World Cup moms who had babies. Like, uh, I know um, <clears throat> there was, uh, I think Tobias Anger, he was, he was at a, a World Cup in Oberstdorf and his wife was there with their young children and she came in and it was snowing outside. And, you know, here we had these couple of changing tables and we're all changing diapers together and, you know, talking about stuff. And so like, it, it, I think it was really good for the World Cup. It was fun for athletes to see these babies around. Um, you know, I always had my World Cup competitors coming over to like, hey, can we hold Breck? Can we do this? And um, it was so beneficial. And it was so cool for me as an athlete. Like, you know, that night that we won the bronze medal, of course, I leading up to going to the race, I had been changing diapers, washing bottles, like, you know, doing mom stuff. And then it was like, all right, I got to go to the race. And so I went and I went into race mode and I won the medal. And as soon as I was done, it was like, okay, where's Breck? And I got to, I walked into the wax cabin and I see Breck up in the air, no pants on. They've got a, a heat gun out. My dad had gotten so excited. He'd forgotten to check his diaper. 
So he'd been in the snowsuits. They were trying to air him out, but it was just like right back into mom mode. Like, okay, let's get a diaper on, let's do all this. And that was just, it was so cool to blend those two experiences. I shouldn't say this, but it, it's kind of like the, a mom's worst nightmare. You know, you, you go away to win a medal at the world championships for a few minutes and you come back and your baby's to get a poopy diaper with a heat gun being used. You know, it's like not dad's or, or men's uh, most proud moment, you know, like you'd like to think that mom could leave to enough time to win a, you know, just win a quick medal and then come back without a heat gun being applied to the baby and in all the other power tools, et cetera, you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, I just had to, I just had to laugh. Um, you know, I just loved it. And, you know, and, and, you know, my, we were really lucky. My, my husband's parents and my parents traveled with us both of those winters. Um, and there's no doubt in my mind, we couldn't have done it without their support. I mean, um, Jeff was over there working his normal fist job. Um, we had this caretakers with us and, uh, and it was just really unique to be able to do all that. And, um, on one hand, yeah, I was kind of like, whoa, okay. I leave for two seconds and look what happens. But at the same time, like I had full confidence that Breck was fine. And, uh, and it was kind of nice to just, you know, like you win a medal and, you know, you're all this flashing lights in, in your mind. And it's kind of like right back to like, nope, I'm mom. That's, that's what I do now. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. Well, let me, let me, let's get to the most fun part of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> Then came the 2018 Olympics. For sure, every American ski fan and most ski fans in the world were wishing you, specifically, success in the team sprint, which was in the ski technique because the individual sprint was in classic. You paired up with Jesse Diggins, and in very dramatic fashion, the two of you won the gold medal. Keegan Randall finally achieved Olympic greatness, and in such a symbolic fashion, in a sense, passing the torch to her young, teammate Jesse Diggins. This, spectac this spectacular culmination of your storied career brought everyone to tears of joy. Everyone was so happy for you and Jesse and for US skiing in general. We finally made it to the top after so many decades of struggling and striving. Bill Koch told me that after the finish, he put his skis on and sprinted around back and forth in his yard screaming for joy. We all felt this way. Your victory was also our victory and the true spirit of Olympic sport. Please tell us about this magical day and what it meant to you. Whew, well, just hearing about it, you know, it's already stirring up uh, the incredible emotion. Um, you know, you, you've said it so well there. Uh, everybody just had really been on this journey with me and with us as a team for a long time, you know, which really started with, I think, the opportunity that we had in Sochi and the collective frustration that we couldn't make that happen but then using that as motivation to then build and build and then to see this team mature to the point where, you know, selecting that team sprint was so hard. Um, you know, right after the Sochi games as a team, as a women's team, we sat down and we said, all right, we want to, we want to contend for a medal in that team sprint. And we're going to do everything we can as a team. You know, every single person wanted to be on that team and we worked collectively towards it. We engineered workouts that way. We talked about it we talked about the challenge of, um, you know, only two women being selected and what it, how we were going to deal with um, not being selected if that was the case. Um, and we talked a lot about the, you know, the collective effort was going to go into whatever two skiers we had on the snow that night. So, you know, all that, all that was easy to talk about, you know, knowing that really up to that point, I had been one of the strongest on the team and kind of the leader. And so of course I pictured myself, 
leading triumphantly that that team sprint in in Pyeongchang. Then I take a year off to have a baby. I come back. All of a sudden, my teammates are all really fast. I I'm not just automatically the star on the team anymore. And all of a sudden, I'm really like getting a dose of like you know what it's like to have to make that team. And uh, then we come into the 2018 season, and uh, despite a really strong start in, in period one, I ended up getting a stress fracture in my foot. And so uh, tour to ski, I tried to race, didn't work. I had to totally back off, change my preparation. And I was really panicking of whether or not I'd even make the Olympic team, let alone the relay and the team sprint. So it was really touch and go. And, you know, I was doing everything in my power to get myself informed to compete for those spots. But I was also really preparing myself for the fact that I might not be selected. And I was preparing myself to be out on the sidelines, out there supporting my teammates with whatever they needed, cheering them on wholeheartedly and knowing that whatever success we were going to get was going to be something we all played a part in. So I was really in that mindset and it was 48 hours before the, the team sprint, you know, in the Olympic village, we were pretty sure it was down. You know, we knew Jesse was going to be on the team because she was in fantastic form. So that other spot was down between me and Sadie. Um, and it was so close. Like we were both competing at really the top level and, so we're sitting together actually in our room and Matt walks in and you can just kind of tell by the look on his face that they've finally reached a decision. And when he, when he tells us that they've chosen me for the team, you know, inside I'm getting that like explosion of confetti and just like, it's the best news. Like this is what I've been working for and wanting. But I also realize at the same time, Sadie's getting the opposite news. And she just turned to me and she said, you know what? I believe in you as much as I believe in myself. You know, what can I do to help? And, and to me, that is still one of the most incredible shows of, of team spirit I have ever seen, because I know in that moment she was hurting, you know, she was, she was having the opposite internal effect, but instead of, you know, storming off or staying quiet or whatever, her first reaction was, what can I do to help? And the next day as a team, we went out and we did a workout together on the course uh, with six of us because we wanted to mess with the heads of our competitors so they wouldn't know which two of us were actually going to be on the team. And, uh, you know, every, all the girls supported us into that sprint. And so I felt tremendous uh, responsibility and pressure to like, okay, I've, I'm, I was chosen. I've got to hold my uh, end of the deal here. And, uh, and knowing I was on that first leg, I had a big job to keep us in the race to put Jesse in position to, to capitalize on her amazing fitness and, so as the race unfolded and I'm just staying right up there, staying right up there, I just, my confidence was growing and I was really trying to just, you know, take it all in and, and not think of anything, but just, I want to leave this course with no regrets. And when, when Jesse came down that finish stretch and, and crossed the line, I let out the most ugly, awkward, just primal yell because it was all the emotion and everything that built up to it. And just knowing what that meant for, for our team was just amazing. And then, you know, we, we had that quick moment in the snow of the two of us. And then as soon as we got up, our entire team was right there on the boards, you know, screaming and crying and cheering. And we got to run over and, and have these incredible hugs and just, um, you know, my only regret is that those moments went so fast, you know, just, just to really soak in the excitement and, um, 
you know, my husband, Jeff was right there too. Um, and he had been right in the finish when, you know, I'd lost the photo finish in Sochi. You know, my coach, uh, Eric Flora was there in the finish, Matt and Grover and all of our techs. I just, it was so magical. And I really could not have written a better story to, to have what I went, you know, what we went through in Sochi teed up perfectly for this to be like the ultimate moment, the ultimate end of my career. And uh, I just, I have to pinch myself sometimes and go, did that actually happen? It's, it's incredible. And then to see what it's, to see the, the ripple effect sense of how excited people are and how many kids are out there running around going, all right, you be Jesse and I'll be Keegan and, you know, tagging and just, um, it's just, it's just so cool. And it's been a, such an honor to be a part of it all. I think as, as happy as everyone was for Jesse, to me, if, if I look at your career and look at your Olympics in 2002, look at your Olympics in 2006, and then look at Sochi, I'm sorry, Pyeongchang, look at Pyeongchang where we probably, we could have conceivably put two teams on the podium. Mm -hmm. we, that's how good you all were. We could have put two teams on the podium. It's like welcome to Team Norway. You know, we finally know now it's like, and, and the, the incredible Keegan Randall was sweating bullets, not knowing if she was going to make the relay team. <laughs> you know, welcome to Team Norway. But I think also, it, it, in many cases, it takes that kind of competition to push, to push everyone to the top. So that was one thought I had. Another thought is Sadie's amazing response. I've heard that uh, as well. And how can you not have such love and respect. I mean, it's like a reverence that I have for that response, like a true reverence. And, and I can see where the opposite response would have given you pressure, but also perhaps a negative energy. Whereas mm -hmm. her response was just love and support and unconditional support to the point where I think it gave you wings. You know what I mean? Totally did. And, and I mean, it was, it was Sadie in that moment and it was, it was every single other uh, team member who I know wanted that spot so badly and the fact that they were all out there that night to just yeah and support us unconditionally and and really just all embracing the success which you know tends to get pointed to the two of us because we happen to be the ones on the snow that night you know it's kind of unfair that we're the only two that got to go up on the podium and to have that heavy hunk of metal but um, it really was this collective effort and I'm just I'm still in awe like when we started talking about a day when it would be hard to pick a relay team, it was just such a foreign concept. We knew that's what Norway and Sweden have been, had to deal with for decades, but for us, it was just like, wow, like we could barely put together a relay team. So I really credit Matt Wickham for planting the idea in our head that we were you know, going to be in that position someday. And because we knew we were gonna get there, we were gonna prepare. And that was part of what really pulled us together as a team. So I have another thought. Your life changed when you guys won that gold medal. You are now Keegan Randall, Olympic gold medalist. It seems to me that's a uniquely American perspective. To me, you're Keegan Randall three-time overall sprint World Cup champion. To me, that's far more prestigious than being an Olympic champion, which, I mean, it's difficult to do, of course. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have done it. But um, some people are also beneficiaries of circumstance. You can be on an incredible relay team and not even do that well and win a gold medal. 
you can have everyone else in the final fall. Remember that Swedish uh, skier? Everyone yeah. else in the final fall finish a half a minute out, struggle across the line with a bad back, and win a bronze medal in the Olympic Games. You know, um, the crazy things can happen where you can be beneficiary or a victim of circumstance. But in the overall World Cup, the best skier wins. The, not just the best skier, but the best professional. You know, manage the entire season, et cetera. And you've done that three times. And I think it's, it's, it's wonderful that you're an Olympic medal, a gold medalist. But on the other hand, I think it's, um, it's a sad commentary on what we value because you are a three-time overall sprint world champion and you win the Olympic gold medal and boom, you know, the confetti goes and everyone's like, you can Matt Randall. And then they can't say your name without the Olympic gold medal thing. And, you know, your star blooms finally. Whereas to me, and I think with most of Europe in the, in the ski world, that's what's really valued is the overall World Cup champion title is and world championship titles as well are equally valued, I think. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, that is the reality. Um, it's just the way uh, American culture works, you know, and uh, we're just, we're not a um, professional forefront on TV all the time kind of sport, you know, so people don't understand what the different accomplishments mean. Um, they only see it once every four years. And it's this incredible story because, you know, it's this gold medal we've never won before. And it's, it was this dramatic fashion and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the spotlight that we, that we get when we get it. And going back to our conversation in, in part one, you know, it's, it really comes down to what are your internal expectations and what can you be proud of? And I knew before Pyeongchang ever happened that I could be incredibly proud of the career that I've had. I mean, if you told me back in 2002 that I would compete for world championship medals, world cup overall sprint titles, a podium finish in the world cup overall, I would have just been like, what, seriously? I mean, it, it, I was hanging on to a sliver of belief at that point that any of that would be possible. And I don't think I be, could have even comprehended that list. So to know that all of that happened before the gold medal ever happened, um, it just, it, maybe it sweetened the experience for me in Pyeongchang because I knew going into those games, it wasn't about the medal. You know, the medal was going to be this cool opportunity to get, you know, some attention for the sport and really cool. And it, it's for sure the one thing that you tell yourself that gets you out of bed in the morning. But I also knew this was my last Olympics. Um, you know, the last time I was going to get to be in this position to represent my country and, and be at this high level of performance and to do it with all these people that have become my family. And so I just really said, I just want to leave these Olympics knowing I, I gave it my all. And as long as I do that, what, what an amazing journey. And I, I will be um, happy. I will be successful in my life, whether or not I have an Olympic medal. And, uh, and then that's when the Olympic medal happens. And it's such a contrast to Sochi where it was like more like, I've got to win this medal. I've got to win this medal. I've got to prove we can be at this level because no one will take us seriously unless we do it. Um, and then not winning that medal and getting to the end of that season uh fighting for that third world cup globe and going you know what i'm really proud of myself for winning this globe because it took the entire season to win it and it would have been easy to walk away and i know that that took grit every uh, every race all season and that olympic day was one day it was five hundredths of a second <laughs> you said this would be your last opportunity to represent the united states 
this might sound corny, but you're always going to represent the United States to me and always going to represent the, the ski community. And I'm, I couldn't be more excited to have, so, have you specifically carrying that flag and banner for us. So, I mean, you could be uh, completely retired and a grandma somewhere in a, in a cabin in Alaska. And as far as I'm concerned, you're, the, you're an incredible represent, representative of, uh, of my values and of my people, which is the United States skiing community. Yeah, I guess I should say it more, and I knew it was my last opportunity to represent the yeah. United States in that way specifically. I knew, you know, that's where you are, you know, you're performing, and it, it's, I, I could tell that after I retired, my, my, the way in which I would represent the United States was going to shift to more of a supportive role, to where I would get to now help support the next generation of athletes who are uh, in that position, and, you know, what can we do to foster um, goodwill in the world, um, you know, all the benefits of sport, all those kind of fun things. I know exactly what you meant. I just um, had an opportunity to make a point that I really wanted to make. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> sure. Okay, Kiki, let's get back to business, if you will. Um, this is, for me, a really interesting question that I, I would love to hear your opinion on. This summer, they made a change. There's been a recent change in World Cup scoring, and I don't like it but I want to get your take on it. In an effort to give more importance to the relay competitions, the FIS has decided to give individual World Cup points for relays. The individual leg splits are not what they used to give the points, but rather the team's final standing for the race. Relays count for distance World Cup and overall World Cup, and team sprints count for sprint World Cup and overall sprint World Cup, uh, for sprint World Cup and overall World Cup as well, points. It seems to me that this gives further advantage to Norway and Russia for the men and Norway and Sweden and perhaps the United States at this point for the women and athletes from the women's field, such as yourself earlier in your career, Neprieva, Stadlover, Lampich, Henich, Razimova, and Feindlich, for example, would be at a further disadvantage uh, in the women's field, despite being capable enough to challenge for the top three overall. In the men's field, this would give significant disadvantage to athletes such as Niskanen, Colonia, Berman, Halverson, Bergel, and Pellegrino. What do you think about this, and what would you have suggested as a solution to the problem of the relays not being taken seriously enough? Yeah, very, very interesting question. Um, you know, and I, I have to say, I, I've, I, I wasn't involved in the conversation uh, at the World Cup level, and in those years where I was in part of the conversation, it was always interesting realizing that the cross country committee, the people that make those decisions are made up of all of the national ski federations. Um, there, there are athlete representatives there. And so, you know, I really believe it is a, it is a body of people with a common passion that want to see the sport thrive. And sometimes you have to make difficult decisions and you have to innovate. Um, and I know it's the relay and helping elevate the relay and get a lot of attention for it has, has definitely been a concern over the years. So I can see that they're trying to, you know, cre be creative about ways to, to keep the relay um, a really important event. You know, that said, personally, I do see your point that this is a major disadvantage for athletes who don't come from a big nation. Um, it, it will certainly present the opportunity for uh, your athletes who are on those strong teams to just get that much more ahead. And that was something I was always a little frustrated with when it looked when you looked at distance and sprint and how that played into the overall. 
I mean, the tour to ski definitely weighed heavily uh, in favor of the distant skiers. And they could get so many points from doing well in those tours that you could win every sprint all season and you still wouldn't be a threat for the overall World Cup title. And to me, that's a missed opportunity to make things more exciting. Which you know, uh, Ola Vigan Hattestad did, I think. I think maybe, I think he won all, but he might have not won one race and he didn't win the overall because of Tour de Ski. Is that correct? If I, if I remember correctly? Yeah, I, th I think something like that. I mean, it, you know, it was particularly clear on the women's side because you just, you had some women who could do pretty well in sprints as well. So they weren't losing points in sprints, but they were so dominant in the distance and the tours. Um, and, and for me in the tour, I would always be in really good standings coming into the last day. And I just couldn't put it together on the final climb because the physiology to do a climb up a mountain is very different from the physiology it takes to be good at sprints. So I was always a bit frustrated that I could do so well through six days of racing and on the seventh day, lose all my advantage. Um, and then the same thing, it's like, well, I'm participating in the tours, but I'm just, you know, I'm not on the podium. So I'm not getting the points to put me in a position to challenge for the overall, despite like those seasons where I was pretty dominant in the sprint. So I would love to see a little creativity to, to make that a little more exciting. So to interject, that's especially with the Tour de Ski because they, the individual stages weren't valued. They didn't, you got points, but there were very few. It was the, the final standings where the massive point values are given, which, which makes the final climb a problem. You know, it's very important for that reason. So thank you. What do you think about this? And what would you suggest? Have you, have you thought about it enough to suggest a solution or, or at least reach a conclusion as to what you think about it? I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it. I'll be honest. Um, you know, I have gotten a little disconnected from the real intricacies of the sport. Um, you know, off the top of my head, I always, always really excited about the idea of a mixed relay of, of giving two men and two women, um, because I think that would then do the reverse direction. It would make it more competitive for some of those smaller nations to maybe compete for prize money and just, you know, um, podiums, which is just exciting. Um, I know there were some challenges to that idea. You know, if you take two races, a uh, women's relay and a men's races, and you combine it into one, you have one TV slot and you have half the number of athletes who can compete. But it's also a really exciting event. Um, and it's the whole kind of fairness idea. So, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I hope that they do a good job evaluating uh, this after the season to say like, hey, are we, are we seeing big discrepancies in the, the way uh, these, these new points being awarded are helping certain athletes from certain countries. Um, I think that's really important that you always kind of test these new things before you make it standard. Um, and, and hopefully they'll do that and, and we'll see. You know, there were a lot of athletes that had a lot of um, concern about these mini tour events when they first proposed them. Uh, you know, for me, one of them was just like, oh, this is gonna be too much, it's early in the season. And then it's turned out to be um, a fantastic event the athletes really enjoy it. It's been great for TV ratings. It's good for organizers. So you always have to be a bit open to trying things before you make your final conclusions. Here's a question for you. I love relays. And I think looking back at many people's careers, including when they're juniors, for example, or in college, relays were some of the most emotional and most fun and most exciting races. Having said that, there is this problem in the World Cup where relays are, are de-emphasized. What would you think about perhaps eliminating World Cup relays and making them just championship events? Would that, you know, that would maybe solve the problem. It would create less, less inequality 
because you're not gaining points winning relays that you're not necessarily earning. Um, it would solve the problem with no one's interested. The athletes aren't even interested in the relays in, in many cases. So it would solve that problem. I don't know. Uh, I love relays, but I wonder if that's a solution. Uh, I would hate to see relays go from, from World Cup. You know, I think um, we just got to continue to to think about it differently. I would love to see them just add a third day to, to a weekend, you know, um, have two individual events and then have a relay. Because um, when, when you bundle more races together, it makes it harder for some athletes to go, ah, I don't care about this weekend. Um, if there's, I see what they were doing with the points. They're trying to put a little bit more on the line to entice more people to do it. But I mean, I've, I've seen some incredible atmospheres. I mean, we had a relay in, Yel in um, Orisaham, Sweden, a couple of years ago, and it was just an electric uh, atmosphere out there. Um, Canada was on the podium. Um, I think we were, we were in the hunt for a little bit of it in the women's race. I mean, um, one of my favorite memories from my career is actually the relay in Yalavari when we won a photo finish for third, which was our first ever four by five podium. I mean, so, that is one of my favorite memories from my career. So to think that other athletes would lose that opportunity to have that would be a little sad. So I was gonna, I was gonna ask you about your favorite race of your career that wasn't your Olympic uh, world uh, gold medal race. Maybe because we're talking about relays. Why don't you describe it, please? Tell me about it. Sure. So um, it was the first World Cup weekend of the 2012-2013 season. Um, I had had another stress fracture in my foot um, that I'd kind of been dealing with all summer and finally had had to take a big break from training in September, October. So I was super nervous about that season and where my form would be. So I came into that weekend thinking like, okay, I just got to be patient. I've got to use these races essentially as workouts. And I just got to be ready that it's going to take a while before I reach um, my, my race form. And so knowing we had a relay that weekend, I was again, kind of preparing myself to not be named to the relay. And then we had, we had an individual 10 K the day before, um, halfway through the race, I was like, okay, things are feeling pretty good. And then I came to the final kilometer and, and Matt Whitcomb was yelling at me that I was in contention for the podium. And I literally thought, Oh, Matt, you're being so nice. You don't have to like boost my confidence like that. Like, it's okay. I know where I stand. I had no idea. I was literally in contention for the podium. And I ended up third that day. It was my first World Cup distance podium. So then all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe I'm in better shape than I thought. So I got named to the relay. Super exciting. Um, the previous season I had found these, these striped socks in a German convenience store that we had started to like, I had bought four pairs so that we could use them for a relay. So that Yalavari relay, um, we pulled out the socks and, uh, and I remember Holly had a great first leg. I was skiing second. Um, I felt super strong on my leg. I got us into second place, um, tagged off to Liz. She had a fantastic leg and then tagged off to Jesse. And then Jesse comes off the final turn in a photo finish with, uh, with the Norway two team wins the photo finish with a lunge and we celebrate as if we've won the race. I, there was so much emotion. We were jumping around, you know, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. So it's already getting dark. So we're above the Arctic circle. Um, you know, it's a, it's a like such a far off place. It was, it shouldn't have been so special, but it is one of my favorite memories because as a team, we, we all put it together and we got to celebrate that. And, and maybe for me, because it was coming after a little bit of doubt, um, that was just, it was so magical. I think you know this, but we, I watched that race with my family and we celebrated as if you won the race as well. 
I think <laughs> there were thousands of Americans that did that, that were watching that race. And when you all um, ended up in third, it was a huge, huge deal to all of us. Yeah, because yeah, that, I mean, that was a huge breakthrough for us. We hadn't, we hadn't hit that point yet. And um, the funny part is, so we had that such a high, you know, amazing result. And then I think the next relay after that, we were in Lac Buzah and we finished dead last. Like we just had like the worst race ever. And we all just kind of got together after the race and we almost had to laugh because we had, you know, our, we had been so bolstered by that podium and then got the reality check of like, okay, we proved we could be there, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're just going to automatically be there. We got to keep working hard. Yep. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I want to, switch it up here and, and just kind of pepper you with a bunch of um, random questions or not related questions. The first is, since sometime around 2005, I think, you have had some pink in your hair continuously. Tell us about your pink hair and the effect it had on your persona. <laughs> so first off, when I was a little girl, I hated pink. Uh, I was a total tomboy and uh, to me, pink was like so girly. But somehow, uh, after I got into ski racing, I started to kind of see pink as uh, kind of this representation of, of like fun and strength. And so I was flipping through ski racing magazine and I saw an alpine skier, uh, Christina Kosnick, and she had just little pink tips in her hair. And I had just had a conversation with someone about how boring cross-country skiing was. You know, you just, oh, you disappear off in the woods and I don't know what's happening. And so I thought, you know what? I, I want to prove that cross country is exciting. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to put a little pink in my hair. And that was, that was in the 2005 season. Um, so uh, going into the 2006 uh, U.S. Nationals, which kind of happened to be Olympic trials, um, I had just gotten the pink like redone and that just ended up being like this breakthrough season. And so from then on, it was like, hey, pink's my power color. And, uh, and it was just kind of fun to, to be this atypical kind of uh, flair, um, I guess, the cross country. And to me, it kind of looked like I had flames coming out of my hat. And uh, yeah, it was, just, it was just so fun. It was kind of out of character, but um, just became this good luck charm. And then shortly after that is when I became friends with Chandra Crawford from the Canadian team. And she had just founded Fast and Female. And hot pink was kind of the signature color of that organization. And same thing, just like, hey, you can be a girl and you could be strong and confident and fast. And so then it just started to come together and then pink, hot pink just kind of became an identity thing for me. Yeah, and it's worked, of course. I mean, it works. It does, I like it and I'm still doing it, you know? I yeah. thought it was kind of ironic that the one time I didn't have pink in my hair was when I was going through breast cancer, but I also had no hair. So um, I, had a, I had a fun pink wig. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, okay. Um, so here's another question for you. The New York Times called you the pride of Alaska, and I'll put in there end of the United States. Uh, what has it meant to you to have lived in Alaska for so many years, to be Alaskan? How has it affected you and molded you? Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that Alaska is a huge part of who I am and has certainly presented opportunities for me that allowed me to ultimately achieve what I have. Um, Growing up there, you know, we have snow on the ground six months of the year. And so you kind of can't help but get pulled into these winter activities. Um, and to me as a kid, that was just, it was so natural. You know, it's when it's dark in the winter, the lights are on. And if it's cold, you just bundle up more and you go out and you ski and you sled and you skate and you do all this fun stuff. 
Um, so that kind of taught me that like, doesn't matter the weather, you know, go out and have fun, do it. That's just what you do. And then uh, because Alaska doesn't have the professional sports teams, like a lot of states do, uh, I felt like it afforded the local media a lot of coverage of Winter, Olympi Winter Olympics and, and the local athletes, high school included. So as I started to kind of grow up, number one, I saw members of my community featured in the front page paper as cross-country skiers. I had Nina Kempel from the 98 Olympics on my ceiling in high school. Um, so it, it made it, the, those heroes seem really personable and attainable. Um, and then once I started having some success in high school, you know, that was encouraged and celebrated. And then when I made the jump to, hey, I'm going to focus on skiing long term, and I started talking to people about my pathway and my dream, I was able to start re recruiting those, you know, those small sponsors um, and, and that encouragement that helped me ultimately focus on training and build up to the point where I could be competitive. And I think that's kind of unique, you know, not everywhere could you, could you get sponsors um, for a 10 year plan at 18 years old and grow up in a place. And then I was fortunate, um, you know, when gold 2002 started, when Jim came up there to start the program and it was a, it was a program that I could do uh, right where I grew up, where my support network was and where I was already familiar with the training grounds. Um, that, that was really important. And I guess when I, started traveling and spending every winter in Europe, I was always amazed how I could come back home in the spring and be in awe of Alaska. Like to go to the routes that I'd been to hundreds of times. And every time I'm out there, I'm just like, this is incredible. This is amazing. I love this place. And I think had I not met my husband who you know wanted to move back to Canada, I probably would have happily stayed in Alaska my entire life. Like I love it up there. Um, so it's just, it is an incredible place and I'm, and I'm really grateful for, for all that I've learned and all, and all the support I've had. And, and, uh, and I really felt that every time I was out competing. Super. That's great. I want to switch it up again. This is a tough question. At least I think it is. Um, you and Jeff had your son Breck in the spring of 2016. Suddenly there was this little being that depended on the two of you for sustenance, safety, nurturing, et cetera. We spoke a few times between now and when Breck was born, and we discussed parenthood and your efforts to make the World Cup more parent-friendly. I have seen cases close up where a full-time successful athlete had a child and then had a difficult time adopting, adapting rather, to having a beautiful little one that needed them a lot, to, to motherhood, basically. Um, you seem to do really well, from my perspective, as a parent right out of the gate. Was that as easy a transition for you as it seemed? I would have thought that it would have been very challenging despite your joy of being a parent. Uh, yeah, well, all the parents out there can certainly relate to this and that, you know, when that kid comes into your life, your everything changes in an instant. You know, your priorities, uh, your time management, <laughs> your sleep schedule, everything. Um, I think for me, what it, what it really came down to was the incredible support network that I had you know, starting, starting with my husband, Jeff, who was um, supportive of this idea that we could have a child and I could then work my way back into training. And, we, uh, you know, the family would accompany me on training camps and over in Europe and would really buy into what was really like my individual dream. The family was supportive and, um, you know, Jeff stayed home uh, during the training season so that I could 
you know, of course I was still doing the mom things. I was breastfeeding and I was, you know, getting up and doing stuff, but I could also go off and train and then I could come back and then I could sleep and I could go off and train again the second time a day. And so, you know, Jeff was incredibly supportive. You know, my parents, when we were in Anchorage, were just down the street. So they were over all the time to help us. My husband, you know, Jeff's parents came over um, and helped us in Europe. The team was, in, was so supportive. Um, you know, they were willing to let my family travel in tandem with the team and, and they were hauling gear for us onto the shuttle buses. And um, so I think I was able to make the return and make a good shift because I had this incredible support. Um, and, and kind of to what I referenced earlier is I just, you know, I really tried to be an open mind about it. I was excited to be a mom. I knew it was going to change the way in which I was an athlete, but I also figured like, let's see how I can integrate this into my lifestyle and let's, you know, be creative about how to maybe do some training sessions with Breck or, you know, maybe not sweat the small stuff sometimes if things don't go perfectly like they did before. Um, and I think it really just, it enhanced my perspective. I didn't live and die by the success of a workout or a race anymore because I knew that as long as I gave my best effort, I was coming home to a, a little boy that was excited to see me. And that, that, the fact that I got to do skiing in tandem with that was, was just a gift. So um, I, I think the other thing I was really lucky about is Breck was a good baby. You know, he, um, he was born at a really healthy weight. He was, uh, you know, he took to feeding right away. You know, it's, we still, of course, were up in the night, but he, he was an easygoing kid. We carted him around Europe and he just kind of rolled with it. So we also, you know, I think if, it, if we'd had a kid that had been more difficult, that would have made it a lot harder. Hats off to you. That's a difficult thing. Um, I'm going to get a little personal, but just one, one reason why, where I'm coming from in this is my wife, who I adore, um, she came off. She, she basically entered her career because she wanted to get pregnant. You know, it wasn't a surprise mm -hmm. kind of thing, but entered her career with a pregnancy. And then, and then we had our first daughter and she had a really hard transition. And I think it's just a, it's normal. It's a difficult thing when you go from being a full-time athlete where you, part of being professional is where you have to be sensitive to your own needs. That's what being yeah. professional is as a full-time athlete, especially an elite athlete, you know, and um, it took her, a while she she wanted to be a mother and she was an excellent mother and she was like a gold medalist mother you know she 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 was perfect in everything she tried to do but she didn't enjoy it necessarily um times absolutely but after a couple of years and then we had our second daughter it was a whole different experience and she was uh, three, a few years later she was i guess better prepared and had had gotten used to you know giving up the things that she needed to give up and um, I just saw firsthand a woman that I absolutely loved and respected and continue to, of course, try so hard at this transition and have a hard time with it. So that's why I, where I was coming from when I asked the question, because I love and respect her more than anyone in the world. And, and I saw her and she's super capable and, she, you know, she's very successful as well. And so I, I thought, um, I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective on it and hats off to the way you were able to handle it and hats off to your support network because they obviously did fantastic for you. I probably could have done a better job with our first daughter. I was much better with our second. So mm -hmm. I probably had something to do with it too, but thank you for your comments on that. Um, I'm sure that there'll be this whole conversation, part of the conversation will be very interesting to some people. So let me switch gears again. Kikin, you're involved in a myriad of different projects 
any one of which would be considered very important. Yet you make it very clear to me that being a mom to Breck is your absolute number one priority. Can you talk about this, please? Yeah, um, I, you know, I think the transition from being an athlete uh, to a parent, being an athlete into not being an athlete full time anymore, all of that is, it's a lot of soul searching and it's a lot of trial and error. Um, but I just, at the end of the day, like, you know, and maybe going through cancer is really just highlighted this for me that at the end of the day, what's, what's the most important thing in my life is, is my son Breck and, and being a mom and, and family. So it's easy to get carried away with all the, the ideas and the network and the projects that, that I can be involved in and that I care about. And I do let myself get carried away from time to time. But I try to remind myself that, uh, you know, Breck is incredibly precious and that time is already going by too fast. And so I need to make sure that, you know, just because I can do all of this stuff doesn't mean that I should because um, he is the most important. So I'm really trying to put little things in my life that remind me when I, when I have that tendency to get carried away that to like bring things back to making sure I have the balance, making sure I can be home and really be present for him and enjoy this thing to be mom. And then everything else I will fit in as it, as it works. Super. There's some wisdom there. Right? I am um, many winters. I'm, I'm traveling two or three, either two out of every three days or three out of every four days. And I've got a lot going on. And sometimes I'll write myself an index card of things that are non-negotiable that I need. I can't, kind of let those balls fall and that's yeah. what you're doing and uh, and I, you can't make it a long list it has to be you know prioritized so you do them that the, the the level at which you do them reflects the importance of them and and it sounds like you're doing that and hats off to you well again so, i'm not perfect but i'm trying <laughs> you know that's what it's about so you were diagnosed with breast cancer in the spring of 2018 shortly after winning winning an olympic gold medal and shortly after retiring and having all these projects planned and ideas of things you could do with your newfound time, this must have been a shock. Um, and it must have been a shock getting the diagnosis, but also having all these plans that you had made just kind of disintegrate in you know, all these projects you had planned. Can you please talk about this revelation and how you were able to respond to it? Yeah, well, um, certainly was the last thing I expected. Um, you know, coming off my career, I was so happy to have ended on such a high note, um, grateful for everything, but excited to transition to this next chapter. We had just moved to Canada um, to be able to kind of focus on my husband's career a little bit. And my number one goal was I want to start, a, you know, I want to expand our family. I was so excited about that. And so when I got hit with the news, it just, a lot of that first reaction was just, frustration of like, this is not fair. <laughs> you know, I just, I put so many things like on hold to get through ski racing. You know, this was supposed to not be about me anymore. It's supposed to be about Jeff and our family. And here it is, like comes this thing that there is like no option, but you know, to do, to just say no pass, I'm not going to do that. Like you are hit with this and you have to deal with it. Um, so I acknowledged a lot of that frustration. You know, I think there was a bit of shock in those early, in that first month or so as well, which maybe helped because 
my athlete frame of mind kind of took over and it was like, okay, this is my challenge and I've got to get treatment and I've got to do this. And I don't know that I really let the emotion hit me right away um, until, until I came home one day and, and Breck um, was trying to get my attention. And I, I had all these phone calls to make because I was trying to coordinate my treatment and he crawled in my lap and it was like, you know, oh my gosh, am I, am I going to be here for him? Um, but, you know, thankfully I had, um, again, my support network, um, Jeff was right there. My mom, my mom was actually visiting and we just really tried to kind of collectively agree that just because there were, there was a lot of what ifs, we were going to stay focused and optimistic that this was just going to be a, a bump in the road. And that's how I phrased it to a lot of people. I just kept telling myself, this is a bump in the road. You know, a lot of, there are some opportunities I'm going to have to say no to, but you know, if I do my treatment and I get through this, I can get back to all that. And, and really, while that stuff is really cool, um, you know, as long as I get through this and I can live, um, you know, that's, that's all I'm asking for. Um, so uh, it's amazing how I think all those skills that I've been building that I thought were so important as an athlete ended up coming and being like n never more important than having to face this challenge of going through cancer. So um it's crazy now that that was two years ago and, you know, I've been through it and things have been successful. And as far as we know, I'm, I'm cancer free. You know, it's, it's never something that's going to completely um, be out of my mind, but um, yeah, I just, I mean, unreal, the timing of, of that. And well, I could have been angry about like, man, couldn't you give me a few more months to enjoy the glow of the gold medal and, you know, maybe have enough time to have another kid and just get that part done. And it's also like, well, if this had happened, six months earlier, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have been able to compete at the Olympics. Um, and I was at a point in my life where I could kind of put things on pause for some months to really focus on treatment. And I think that was really, really helpful. And yeah, just, just wild. You just, you never know what you're going to encounter. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's, there's been some definite upsides to just the, the perspectives I've gained from it. Um, uh, the ability to connect with people on a really human level has been pretty amazing. Um, and I don't listen to my own advice every day, but I also am trying to really use that to say, okay, am I really focusing on what's most important to me? So one of the problems with Zoom is you can't have physical contact with the other person, which I guess is a blessing <laughs> in some cases, but this is the point where normally I would want to give my old friend a hug, COVID be damned. <laughs> I'm sorry I, I can't do that. Hugs. <laughs> Thank you. Keegan, I, I feel I need to say something. You're famous because of your ski exploits. You're popular mostly because of the exposure your ski exploits have given you. And you're valued because of that. You know, you know, Keegan Randall, Olympic gold medalist. I, I want you to know that I've known you for a long time, so but I can I can say with confidence that you're on a different level in terms of how people love you and admire you and respect you, not because of your medals, not because of your athletic endeavors, but because it has given everyone a window to see your character and personality through. And I know it maybe sometimes it's easy for a, a famous athlete to feel treated almost like a, a winning machine. And when the winning stops, the accolades stop and, and all that. 
That's not the case, and I don't think will ever be the case with you. I, and I know other people value as a person, and your health and your ability to be there for your son and to live a, a, a healthy life is of paramount importance to me and to everyone else. And just, just realize that you're valued as a person and treasured as a person, not just as a, a, a metal <laughs> mach winning machine, you know? Well, thanks. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, so incredible to hear that, especially from people who know me so well. Um, that really was one of the biggest things I, I got to experience from, from going through cancer was, you know, I went up a couple thousand Instagram followers when I won the gold medal and it was exciting. Um, but within seconds of announcing my breast cancer diagnosis on Instagram, the amount of support that came pouring in from all areas of the world and just, uh, the, the support encouragement, um, you know, not feeling like I had to be the strong leader out front, but this is where I actually turned and people supported me. I still have a hard time putting into words what that felt like and what that's meant to me. Um, and it did make me realize that, you know, while I know everyone celebrated the wins, you know, and that was really fun. Um, you know, there are so many people that do, um, value and support me for, um, yeah, the person and, and certainly what I was going through. And I, yeah, I just, maybe that was the perfect thing to experience right after a gold medal, because it would have been really easy to feel like, okay, well, everyone likes me because I want a gold medal, but you know, who am I really? Um, to be hit with that, like right at the start of that transition, um, I think has been really powerful in shaping kind of, yeah, the things I'm gravitating towards now. Well, you just mentioned how you weren't needing to be the strong one and how you were drawing strength from other people. Um, what I know about how you conducted yourself after your cancer diagnosis, maybe you didn't feel the need to be strong for the people, but you definitely were strong for the people. You dealt with your cancer like a true champion, spreading love and positive vibes all over. I'm sure there were people who treated you and were around, who were around you, who were so inspired by you. I know I was. Can you tell us about your philosophy and experience in dealing with this challenge? Um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I feel like my athlete frame of mind, you know, was so conditioned over all those years that it just kind of sprung into action. And I like literally pulled out a spreadsheet and said, okay, what, you know, what do I have to do for treatment? How am I going to do this? What's my new training plan? Okay. I, you know, I can't do this on my own. I need a team of people around me. Um, you know, I, I, I don't need to be, uh, private about this, like, or shy about it. Like, um, you know, cause I, I definitely felt that urge, but I just kind of knew that like, I wanted people to know what I was going through. Um, and that hopefully by kind of sharing my experience, then, maybe that would end up helping someone else. Um, I knew I wanted to approach my treatment with, the, with an open mind, kind of like I had with my pregnancy. There's no textbook on how to train through pregnancy. There's no textbook on how to train through cancer. Um, I knew my goal was not, you know, optimal shape. It was, you know, whatever I could do to support my treatment and be healthy. Um, but having that mindset of going in, of going like, okay, well, I don't know what I'll be able to do, but I also don't know that I can't do this stuff. So let's see, and let's ask questions and let's um, make, I made the intention at the beginning that I wanted to try to stay active. I wanted to, you know, to be open about what I was going through. Um, and, and I was just gonna commit to staying optimistic. And I think making those intentions at the beginning ended up being really important. Um, 
because uh, on, on the tough days, it like, you know, it got me out the door. And if I felt like a low point, I could go to that network of support and it would lift me up. Um, and, uh, and I got through and you know what? I mean, it was, it was hard. It was certainly the hardest challenge I've ever faced. Um, and there were days when I felt pretty miserable, but I think staying so active, you know, coming into it so fit and using that kind of positive mindset helped me so much. And so to now be able to talk about what I was able to do uh, and hopefully I hope encourage other people um, to have adopt that mindset, adopt some of those intentions to help them through their journey. Um, it's been really cool to see how that's all unfolded and uh, you know, just didn't know exactly how it was going to go, but um, I think trying to set some of those good intentions ended up um, making it a, a really valuable experience. One of your slogans and uh, it's reflected in a, in, a, in a line of products that you launched in 2018 is it's going to be okay. On your website, you wrote, the socks remind me to keep a positive mindset while going through my cancer treatments and I hope they can offer you the same reminder. When I read that, I got goosebumps. Um, what a beautiful and much needed message. What is the website where people can purchase these socks and headwear? Uh, Keegan.com, nice and easy. Um, there's, uh, you click on the shop and it'll take you to the site. Um, this started as uh, I had a, I had ordered a pair of rainbow colored running shoes um, when I was, uh, you know, weeks before the Pyeongchang Olympics and really feeling like, oh my gosh, am I going to make this team? And I saw these rainbow colored running shoes come up on Instagram and I was like, dang it, I'm buying those. And then I get home at the end of the season and it's like, oh, rainbow colored running shoes. Very cool. And then I started to have to go to all these doctor's appointments. And I just said, you know what, darn it, I'm wearing those running shoes so that I can look down at my feet and remind myself to like stay positive, stay hopeful. And so I'm, I'm wearing these shoes and, you know, the, the doctors are commenting on it and, you know, I'm finding it actually, you know, it's really helpful. And so uh, Jeff came up with the idea. He's like, well, if these are helping you, you know, maybe we can continue this into some new product. Shoes were going to be a little hard to manufacture but we figured, you know, socks were really universal. And uh, we, we found ourselves constantly saying uh, it's going to be okay. Like, it's almost like just, you know, say it, put it out there. And if you say it enough, it just, it starts to happen almost. And so it became the perfect slogan. And the K and the okay is kind of my Keegan K, my signature. My brother is a graphic designer and he came up with the logo. Um, so the products came together with the socks um, and then L.L. Bean is, you know, a big uh, supporter of mine and they wanted to contribute to the project. So they donated the headbands initially and, and what started is like a, a fun project. We'll just see how it goes, you know, has, has really turned into um, this incredible little business where um, we're able to get the socks and the headbands out there to help support people through challenging situations but then we also raised some money for Active Against Cancer and some other things at the same time. And it's been so incredible to hear the stories of, of how people are, are buying these products for family and friends or, you know, a whole soccer team getting them before a big game or, you know, just, just cool to, to see these things out there doing good for people. And with everything going on in 2020, you know, we probably need these socks more than ever right now. <laughs> so there's, a legendary ski coach named Sten Feldheim. He's coached on the U.S. ski team, NMU, Northern Michigan University for a long time. He's legendary. He's fond of saying many different kind of slogans or, or pearls of wisdom. And one of them is, form an attitude 
and then it will form you. Mm -hmm. It's going to be okay. I see that having a similar effect. It's an attitude that you you keep saying it. And as you say, you say it often enough, hopefully it'll come true. I think that having the attitude of that will bring good things. I, I think that's a really powerful uh, thing you've started. It really is. And it's kind of cool how universal it is. You know, it's not just about cancer. Um, you know, it can be, it can be, you know, 2002 Keegan going, oh my gosh, I have this big dream. Is it going to be possible? You know, it's going to be okay. There's a, there's a chance this could work out, you know, keep it, keep it rolling. And I, and I do really believe that, 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 um, that attitude, kind of that intention, it, it really does set things in motion. And uh, I think we all, we all need that no matter what we're dealing with in life. I think if the Keegan Randall story were written, assuming the, the, the person, if not yourself, someone to help you with writing, not that you need it, but were able to capture your personality and character, I think it would be an instant bestseller and a classic even. More than just learning about the amazing events and accomplishments of your life, being able to directly hear your perspectives and opinions would make reading this book truly important in my opinion. Is something, is this something that you have thought about? Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of learned just in the, the, the motivational speaking I've done over, over the years that there is a really important power in storytelling to uh, kind of lift out some of these, uh, you know, whether you call them tools or themes or mindsets that, that everyone can kind of apply to their challenges. And so, um, you know, it's been wonderful to be able to tell that, tell those stories from the stage. It's been wonderful to transition to doing them virtually in, in various forms. Um, but I think a book could be a really fun way to, to kind of share through my story how some of these really important themes and tools have, have helped me and then I think can, can help other people um, really make the most out of their lives, to get the most enjoyment, to be healthy, um, to be ambitious um, and to be resilient. So um, it's definitely in the works. Haven't figured out exactly, you know, how or where or when, but um, it's definitely a, a, a priority of mine. Super, I'm glad to hear that. Keegan, you're back in school at APU studying online from British Columbia, looking to finish your undergraduate degree with the goal of finishing a CPA program and eventually starting a career in accounting. Why accounting? <laughs> well, it's, it's been a fun journey. So yeah, first off, um, I started my undergraduate degree in the fall of 2001, um, right out of high school and would take classes where I could, you know, back then there were, weren't so many online options. So I would take classes kind of in the fall when I was training in Anchorage, and then I'd follow up with the summer and take the spring off while I was racing. Um, so I started kind of accruing credits, but along the way, you know, I ski racing started getting, uh, more, uh, more demanding. Um, I was traveling more and I really had to kind of run myself as a business. And so knowing that I was going to be compromising the amount of focus I could put towards school, I just kind of said, you know what, I will, I will kind of get to that when I can. And then here I am retired and all of a sudden it's like, you know, okay, what do I want to do going forward? And I had a, a crazy year last year. I was out on the road like 270 days and I got to take up all my IOC work and um, I was doing a bunch of motivational speaking and I did some really fun stuff with Fisher. Um, and so it was all these really cool opportunities, but I was on the road a ton. And as I went through that, I realized, wait a second, like family is most important to me. 
I want to, I want to eventually get to a point where I can do something that still allows me to have a great impact to do things I love to do, but has a bit more of a balance with my family. And so as I thought about what that could look like, I worked with a career coach through the US OPC career program. And we started talking about like all the experience I've had, things I'm involved in. Um, I took some aptitude tests. And after all of that, I, it spit out some, we, we had some recommendations as to what all that would play into career-wise. And accounting was one of the professions that kind of was suggested. And I've always kind of wondered about it because I, I love doing spreadsheets. I love kind of analyzing things and, and planning. And so I talked to a few accountants I know, and they love what they do. They say it's a very dynamic field. Um, and, uh, and so I thought, wow, well, this, this seems like maybe something that I could gradually work towards that would combine a lot of the things I love to do. And, uh, and then maybe make me then that much more effective in organizations I work with because I'd have these business skills to go along with all the other um, experience. So um, yeah, found out there's a cool CPA program here in BC and uh, kind of set that as my my new goal, it's, it's a five-year plan, at least at this point. And uh, in order to, to work towards that CPA, I realized I needed to finish my degree. So I'm really excited to be back at APU. Um, I, you know, I'm on track to graduate next year, which will make it a nice even 20 years since I started this whole process, um, working on my degree in business administration. And uh, it's been really cool, actually, to be back in the classroom. Um, all the classes I'm taking now, I feel like I apply directly to what I'm actually doing in my daily life. You know, I took accounting this summer. I just took organizational behavior and, and human resources. Now I'm taking board and volunteer management and entrepreneurship. So it's kind of cool to be able to really like be interested in what I'm learning, see the application of it, and then see what it's building towards. Um, you know, having a new plan and a roadmap has actually been really, really nice. <laughs> so I have two daughters and at some point, in their lives, different points. What do I, what should I do when I grow up has come up. And both of them, I recommended studying uh, finance in college with the idea of becoming an accountant. That was just, you know, of course it, it, they need to have a passion for it or an interest in that aspect of life. But um, when you're an accountant, of course you have flexibility. You can live anywhere you want pretty much. And you can work for almost any type of business. And there are a lot of people like myself who don't have a finance background. You can only go so high in business if you're not the boss before you reach a ceiling because you don't have the finance background. So there are a lot of really strong arguments for studying finance and, um, and advantages to doing so. Well done. Thanks. Well, we'll see, you know, I'm, uh, yeah. uh, you know, balancing, uh, you know, going back to school with, with family and career and all that. And it's, it's, been an exciting journey, but you know, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Keegan, you have a laundry list of amazing traits. If I had to highlight one of them, I would say resilience. <laughs> you have been so consistently there, chipping away at your goals for so long, making progress here and there, and not giving back an inch, even when you have setbacks. Can you speak for a moment or a minute about resilience? Is this something you were born with, or can you develop this trait? I, I think resilience is very much like a muscle. I think the, the more you encounter situations where you kind of uh, decide that you're, you're gonna see this as a, as a setback, but not an endpoint, um, as an in, you're not gonna see it as an insurmountable wall and you, and you find strategies to help yourself um, work through it, get around it, whatever it is, 
every time you do that. And it could be something as simple as, um, let's see, forgetting, forgetting your ski boots on the way to training. And you could be like, ah, oh, well, forget it. I'm not skiing today. You know, I've, I've already blown it. Or you could drive back home, you could get your ski boots and you can come back to the trailhead and you can do it happen. And every time you kind of like decide to knock back down, you build that muscle. And, and I really think that um, in high school, you know, I broke my collarbone in cross country running season and uh, you spent the better part of that season rehabbing and uh, ended up winning the state championship kind of unexpectedly. And then eight months later, I broke my back and, and had to do the same thing and ended up kind of doing the same thing in track. And so perhaps some of those early experiences then made me start to realize, well, the last time I had a setback, I worked through it and I had this big breakthrough. So this time I have a setback you know, why not work through it? Maybe there's, you know, maybe there's another breakthrough waiting for me. And every time you do it, it builds. And then all that happened in the sporting context. And then all of a sudden I'm hit with cancer and it would have been really easy to just be super intimidated, um, scared by it, all these things. But I think just that's why reflexively that mindset kicked in and said, well, okay, this is my new challenge. You know, what am I going to do to to navigate this? And I'm going to stay hopeful that maybe there's another breakthrough on the other side. So, um, you know, I, I'm sure there probably is some some personality baked in that that orients me that way. I mean, we know some people are more optimistic and some people aren't. Um, so I'd certainly have that optimistic side. But um, but I think you can just kind of choose to 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 try to work your way through challenges, and then every time you do, feel good about the the success and then use that to build your abilities for the next time. Empowerment is a word that's thrown around a lot these days, not just of women, but of, of people in general. And I don't think that there's anything as empowering as overcoming adversity, where you, where you trust yourself and you give yourself the opportunity through stick to itness to overcome some kind of adversity. And then you demonstrate to yourself that you could do it. And then you do it again, and you do it again, and then it grows. And in terms of maybe my definition of power, you're one of the most, if not the most powerful person I know. And I think it's got to do with what we're talking about. Every, every opportunity you've had to overcome adversity or some kind of challenge, you never shied away. You just laced up your boots and went after it. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, and what's cool is, um, you know, you learn so much about yourself along the way. Um, you gain new perspectives. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, the choice is up to you. You either take on the challenge or you don't. But if you don't take it on, you can't expect to get anywhere. Um, and even if you try and fail to overcome something, you're still going to get a lot farther, farther than if you sit there and do nothing. So I think that's also like in the back of my mind of like, okay, well, it's better to make an inch than to no, not go anywhere at all. So here's a a question that I think is actually quite deep, but um, it's what do you know now that you wished you had known when you were 18? <laughs> um, well, it's kind of funny. I think about if I could go back and talk to myself at 18 and, you know, in, in some respects, yeah, I've learned some things about training that I would love to, you know, tell myself to do differently and maybe, you know, get success a little bit faster. But at the same time, you know, I wouldn't want to change a lot of things because I think the, the learning process um, was, was so important. So I think what I would really go back and tell myself at 18, um, you know, particularly around skiing is that, um, soak it in, 
it is an incredible lifestyle. It's an incredible thing to, to spend your life focused on um, for, for what is a limited period in your life. And I am incredibly grateful I got to ski race for as long as I did. Um, you know, I know at times I was rushing through it. I was, you know, frustrated with plateaus. Um, I always wanted more. Um, and I, you know, I would get annoyed with my teammates every so often, you know, and it's just like, now it's like, if I had just taken a few more moments to really just like let it sink in what I was getting to do and really live in the moment. Um, you know, I think any suggestion to do that a bit more, I think, I think this would be my advice. And, um, and I also kind of learned about halfway through my career, I started getting confident enough to get to know some of the other racers that I was competing against internationally. And that ended up blossoming into some pretty incredible friendships and training camps. And I would tell myself to go back and probably be more open and assertive about doing those things a little sooner. Cause I think those were really fun. Super. What is something about you, Keegan Randall, that might surprise people if they were to find out? I'm very squeamish when it comes to sea creatures. Um, <laughs> I, I do not like snorkeling. Uh, for some reason, being in the water um, around things that I can't predict um, is really, I'm really out of my element and I don't love holding my breath. You can put me on a VO2 max test and I will breathe harder than anything, but put me underwater and it make me have to hold my breath. I hate it. So yeah, it's probably has to do with growing up in Alaska, not being in the water, uh, that much or the, you know, a pool, a lot of pool time, but not so much out in the ocean or lakes. Um, so I'm still, I'm working my way up to, um, we have some beautiful lakes here in Penticton and last summer I got a bit into open water swimming and it took me a while to get comfortable. Huh. Well, cool. I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, last question, I believe. Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Never give up. That is, that is something that I, uh, my parents really taught me early on. Um, my dad used to say a Randall never gives up. And, um, you know, when, when I would get involved with a sport, you know, I remember complaining about cross-country skiing when I first started doing it because it was hard work to go up the hills and it was cold. Um, but they kind of said, you know what, you're like, you've committed to this. You need to see it through the season. And then after you do that, you can move on. And so kind of always had this idea of like, never give up because um, again, you, you just, you don't want to have to live with that feeling of, of having given up and and you just also never know what is on the other side of, of this challenge. And um, I think that has served me so well. Um, so that one's really good. And then the other one, you know, my dad taught me early on was, he called it always keep your nose clean. You know, he just said, you know, people are gonna, people are gonna be watching you. And uh, you know, so, you know, you take responsibility in that and, and always try to, you know, take the high line, you know, there, there'll be opportunities where you can cut corners and you can get away with it, but, but don't do it because you're going to, you're going to gain so much by being that positive role model and doing things the right way that it's never worth those shortcuts. And, um, you know, I think that's been really helpful. Uh, when I had a, um, a sponsored car as an athlete in, in Alaska, it said Keegan Randall on the side of it. And I was sponsored by Subway. And uh, we used to always joke that I could never be caught in the McDonald's drive-through because people would see my car, you know, and they go, oh, she's not eating at Subway. She's eating, you know, eating at McDonald's or whatever. So, you know, there were some, some little things in there that were, uh, it, was, it was good to remind myself to, you know, make good decisions. <laughs> That's really cool. That, uh, those thoughts are really cool. 
I want to say something. Um, this isn't something that I um, thought about, and it might come out wrong, but it's, that's the beauty of what we're doing, I guess. But it's something I feel strongly about. I was going to say this uh, when we were done to you privately, but um, I need to say it. A lot of the communication that has come, not necessarily from, but about Keegan Randall, about you, has been in a great, in a, a great extent oriented towards women. The Fast and Female, a lot of the books, the story of the women's ski team. And I understand that women need role models and you're as good as it gets. Um, however, I, I should also say one weakness and sign of stupidity of men is oftentimes we don't look to women for role models. You know, uh, it's stupid of us. We're, we're excluding half of the possibilities that we could have um, to learn from and be inspired by people. So I just want to go on record and say to people listening in to you, I'm a Marine. I'm an Olympian. I'm a national champion. I'm a man. And Keegan Randall is as good a role model as there ever was or as, as I know. And I think it would be a huge mistake for men not to look to you for inspiration and, and wisdom and as an example, because you're as good as I get. And, and I, you're an inspiration to me. I appreciate the heck out of you. I treasure knowing you and our relationship. And I think other, other men should get the same type of inspiration and, and joy and pride when it comes to you as well. So I, I feel strongly that needs to be said. Well, well, thank you. Um, no, I, I think it, it is really important. And, um, you know, oftentimes a lot of the attention does get put to, you know, what the women on our team have been able to accomplish. But, you know, I would be amiss if I didn't credit the incredible influence that I got from some of my male teammates. Um, you know, Chris Freeman having some just incredible breakthrough results starting in 2002. Um, you know, when he, when he won the race at U23s, you know, I was right there. Um, you know, so close to what he deserved was a world championship medal a couple of times, you know, watching, watching him, watching Andy Newell get on the podium in sprints, you know, watching a lot of my guy teammates um, really encouraged me, gave me a lot of confidence. You know, I enjoyed so many great moments with them. Um, and now it's really cool to turn and also see like the momentum from uh, the young men in, in our ski program. I'm starting to uh, to really show big results and, and uh, you know, I'm cheering. So yeah, we were, we got a lot of credit as a women's team, but what was really cool about the U.S. ski team is we were, we were one team. We traveled together, we worked hard together. And um, so, yeah, I think it is important to always look for role models um, sometimes in unconventional places because uh, we, we do have these incredible examples all around us. And I'm, I'm really grateful for um, the impact all of those guys have, and, you know, including yourself, um, you know, for believing in me when I was young and unknown and ambitious um, and helping me feel like um, anything was possible. Thank you. Keegan, you truly are the pride of the U.S. Nordic ski community and of anyone else who knows you. I wish you health for you and your family. I wish you good professors <laughs> and lenient professors. Yep. And a huge thank you for continuing to inspire so many others, including myself, despite being an old friend. Thank you so much for spending time with me and the American Ski Public today. 
Well, this is great. Really fun chance to, you know, pull back the pages and look at all that's happened and, and to hopefully continue to, to bolster what, what is yet to come. Um, I can't wait for this. This season is going to be unconventional, but I can't wait to see what our athletes are going to do and, um, and where, where the, we'll continue to take skiing in the United States. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thanks again for doing this. And uh, I hope to maybe not see you soon, but uh, hear from you soon at some point. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. <laughs> okay, good luck.